You ever been in a situation where you've kind of been forced to make a decision? Sometimes there's a deadline that kind of pushes that a little bit. It pushes us into action. Uh, This might be a bad topic, but we have some of our students that have exams yet this week. Uh, Those deadlines are hanging over them, uh, at least until uh, uh, through Monday and Tuesday here, and that kind of pushes them to action, right, to study, because uh, something is sort of on the line. There is a deadline there, and we have those kinds of things in our work sometimes. Uh, Sometimes we don't really have a hard and fast deadline, but we just know that conversation needs to happen, and it's kind of just there, and it, it, it motivates us a little bit. We're not sure when. Uh, the time is going to present itself. Well, Jeremiah, where we're going to be today, was calling on God's people to take action. He was actually warning them about coming judgment. He was warning them about a deadline that was coming up. And he was wanting them to be motivated to change, to get ready, to prepare. And so we're going to consider Jeremiah's prophecy here today. I think it has a way of uh, spurring us on to action as well. Jeremiah is not uh, written or arranged chronologically. Uh, Very frustrating to someone like me. I like to think in terms of analytical and just uh, straightforward ordering uh, of the account. And that is not Jeremiah. It's, uh, It's been called an anthology, like just a collection of various sayings and prophecies. So we kind of have to work through that a little bit. It's actually more arranged thematically to communicate certain uh, key uh, themes and lessons uh, throughout. Uh, but I do want us to, there, there is a narrative that's kind of lying beneath the surface here in Jeremiah, and uh, we're really introduced to it very quickly in the book. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anatote in the territory of Benjamin, The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. So this is the context. It is kind of a dark context. season in Israel's history. Jeremiah comes onto the scene during Judah's last days. So there's a few kings here uh, that are on the scene, but the point is these are the last kings of Judah, the last kings of Jerusalem. And uh, during Jeremiah's time, in the course of his ministry, uh, Jerusalem is going to be conquered by Babylon and taken into Exile. So we looked a little bit at this last week. Um, ever since King David and King Solomon, Israel was divided. It was a weakened, divided kingdom. The ten northern tribes came to be called the kingdom of Israel, and the two southern tribes uh, came to be called the kingdom of Judah. Uh, the kingdom of Israel in the north far exceeded the south in its wickedness, and God had already taken them off the scene, taken them into captivity, into exile. But now the, 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 the Babylonians were closing in on Judah in the south. So this is where Jeremiah comes onto the scene. Last week we looked at Isaiah 
that Isaiah was sort of looking ahead and was talking about exile and, and talking about Israel's ultimate restoration. God was not done with Israel. Uh, but, but Isaiah was writing from a distance. Jeremiah was living it. He was, he was experiencing all the horrible things that happen when a city is under siege. And you don't have enough food to eat, right? And, and all of the nasty things that go along with that. So th- this, is, this is Jeremiah's context. It's why he's often referred to as the weeping prophet. Uh, we're told that he wept <laughs> on several occasions. But his context uh, certainly drove him to tears. Uh, we also have a call here in the opening chapter. We kind of get a little bit of detail as to how God raised up Jeremiah for a specific task to be his spokesperson to the nation. Uh, Beginning in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So we see there in that final verse, uh, there in verse 10, that uh, Jeremiah was going to have a difficult assignment. It was not going to be a a positive message that he was bringing. Uh, It was primarily going to be a message of uprooting and tearing down, destroying and overthrowing. It was going to be a message of judgment. There was some hope sprinkled in. He was also going to speak about building and planting. But the the predominant tone of his message was judgment. Uh, I I love how uh, we're told here that God put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. And it's almost as if Jeremiah is the one who is uprooting and destroying and tearing down. Like Jeremiah was, was doing something very powerful, not because Jeremiah was so great, but because he had God's words in his mouth. And God's words are so great. And God's words are so powerful. So I, I, I was challenged with that, that when, when we come and speak God's truth, um, when we share the gospel, uh, we don't go in our own charisma, our, our own ingenuity. Uh, we bring the powerful words of Almighty God. And that's just illustrated in such a great way here with Jeremiah. Of course, uh, the other thing I find encouraging here is just Jeremiah's response. He feels really inadequate. Um, In in part, he he, he cites his age, but he also just seems to cite maybe he didn't feel like he was very eloquent. He didn't feel like he was good with words. And God says, don't worry about it because you're not going to have to come up with the words. (laughs) I'm I'm giving you the words to say. I just need you to say them. (laughs) I just need you to be my mouthpiece. And uh, again, what a relief. You know, sometimes we think when we're sharing our faith with someone or sharing the gospel, I don't think I can answer all their questions. And uh, we, just, we just have been called to, to just speak God's words. 
we don't have to necessarily be, be clever. Uh, and anyway, God was not taking Jeremiah's excuses, right? Uh, he said, don't worry about your age. Just, just do what I've told you to do. <laughs> and uh, just a great, uh, I think a great reminder here is we think about Jeremiah's calling. We think about our own calling, our own commission that we've been given by Christ. Um, I think we're also just reminded here that God doesn't call us, doesn't call his servants to a cushy life. Uh, Jeremiah's task was really hard. I, I'm going to say it was harder than most, right? Most of us don't get this lot in life. Uh, but the point is that God calls us to hard things. Uh, God's goal is not just to make our lives easy and carefree. God has called us into his mission, and sometimes that involves opposition, it involves hardship, it involves rejection, it involves loneliness. Um, we, we see the overtones here in the text, don't we? I mean, Jeremiah did not want this text, this, this, this particular uh, uh, commission. He, he knew it was going to be difficult. Um, matter of fact, God has to say, do not be afraid of the people you're going to be talking to. As we look through Jeremiah, we're going to find out why Jeremiah could have been afraid. I mean, he experienced overt rejection, persecution, imprisonment. Uh, this was not a popular message. Um, but Jeremiah, again, is called to obedience, and, and we are called to obedience too. There's great reward and, and joy in serving Christ. But let's be honest, it's not easy. It involves paddling upstream, and oftentimes we're sharing a message that is ultimately hopeful and extends the offer of eternal life, but in the short run, it's confrontational. We're telling people they need to be saved, they need to be rescued from their sin, and people don't like to hear that, I don't like to hear that. Uh, So again, so much here in Jeremiah's call that I think is just instructive to us and encouraging to us. And like Jeremiah, we're not sent out Again, with our own power, our own words, but with God's authority and his presence with us. So, uh, Jeremiah's call, great section there. A lot of the book is filled with challenges. If we just consider Jeremiah's life, uh, again, he confronted the sins of the people, and there's a lot of, there's 52 chapters here. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. Jeremiah spends a lot of time confronting people in their sins, and he does it in a lot of different ways. Uh, he uses uh, themes of rebellion. Uh, he, he talks about how God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, right? He saved their life. He gave them freedom, and he gave them a wonderful land. He gave them every possible blessing, every opportunity to flourish, and then they turned their back on him. They, they, they spurned him, right? They rebelled against him. Uh, he talks at one point about uh, God... Uh, giving them living water, right? God giving them refreshment, life-giving water. And then he says that the people turned and tried to find uh, satisfaction from other water sources. <laughs> uh, they tried in vain, by the way, <laughs> to find fulfillment from other water sources. And so that was one imagery that he uses. But the most prominent, the most repeated, the most graphic Uh, imagery is that of spiritual adultery and prostitution. Chapter 2, verse 20. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. 
Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Over to verse 23. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel, running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, Who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves at mating time. They will find her. I mean, just over and over and over again. In every chapter, he develops this really graphic theme of adultery and unfaithfulness. The the people of Judah were not just tempted. They, They were actively looking for other lovers, other places to give their allegiance and their love. And so Jeremiah uh, confronts their unfaithfulness. There's a a pointed scene in chapter 7 where Jeremiah is told to go into the temple courts and proclaim God's judgment. So notice what it says here, Jeremiah 7 verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So the people, in some sense, thought maybe they were safe because... uh, this was the, the place where the temple was at, right? Where the, the Ark of the Covenant was at. And, and certainly God would not allow Jerusalem to fall. And Jeremiah had to say, yes, he will. <laughs> right? I mean, God's judgment is coming. God is going to bring a foreign nation against you. Their sins would have consequences. Jeremiah summarizes in chapter 9, verse 12, he kind of poses a question to them. Who is wise enough, uh, Jeremiah 9, 12, who is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? Why in the world are we in this situation, right, surrounded by foreign armies, Um, Verse 13, the Lord said, it is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the bales as their ancestors taught them. So they've rejected God's laws. That's why God has brought judgment upon them. They followed the bales. By the way, the bales were, uh, Baal was a, a god of storm. He was a fertility god. Uh, He represented the rains that would come and make your crops grow. And so by turning to these other gods and goddesses, it was really essentially out of greed. They wanted to prosper. And so they would pursue and try to pacify all of these different gods. Chapter 13, we see uh, an imagery here that God tells Jeremiah to take a linen belt, uh, some undergarment that, that a person would wear, and, and, and Jeremiah was to wear it. It was a nice garment, and, and then he was to go and bury it in the ground. And then several months later, he was to go back and dig it up again. 
and it was not a pretty picture, right? There's bugs and stuff, and it's all rotted out and falling apart. It's good for nothing. You can't wear it anymore. It's certainly not good for what it was designed for. It's kind of sad, right? This really nice garment, and now it's yuck. And God says, this is, this is how I view my people, right? They were this beautiful garment that I desired to be worn and displayed and and now, because of their sin, it, they're, they're completely useless for the purpose for which they were intended. So this was, again, to be a picture of the condition of the people and an explanation for why God was bringing his judgment. Needless to say, Jeremiah's message was not popular. He received death threats. He was beaten and put into prison. Uh, And beginning in chapter 20, Jeremiah now begins not just to confront the sins of the people, but he actually begins to talk about how God is going to judge them. And specifically, he's going to use the nation of Babylon. And not only did he say Babylon was going to defeat them, but he actually said he encouraged the people to surrender to Babylon. Um, He said, essentially, if you resist, you're going to be killed. But if you surrender and just turn yourselves over to Babylon, uh, your lives will be spared. Again, this was not a very popular message. Uh, It would be like me telling you that we were going to be invaded by some extreme uh, Islamic terrorist group and we were just to hand over our properties and possessions and our country to them. You'd be like, what? (laughs) That's not happening, right? I mean... They actually viewed Jeremiah as a traitor. And they actually suggested that he was maybe working for the enemy. Maybe he was working for Babylon. So he's misrepresented. He's falsely accused. um, He's enduring the scorn of the people. Again, beaten and imprisoned. course it happened just as Jeremiah had said. Jeremiah continued to speak God's truth to the remnant that remained there in Judah, but even then the people would not listen. So we have the challenges. It was a really difficult task that God had given him, but Jeremiah does it well, and ultimately there there is a commendation issued to him. Again, because of his difficult ministry, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Lonely, rejected, and persecuted. He was their last chance, kind of the last prophet that God sent them. And it seems that Jeremiah really felt the weight of that responsibility. And so discouraged when the people would not respond. I'm going to invite you to turn to Jeremiah 18, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning. I think here in Jeremiah 18, we, we really have a good summary of the, the, the big idea or the main point of Jeremiah. Uh, it's another one of the episodes where God kind of instructs Jeremiah to do something visible, uh, sort of a, a visual aid, as it were. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. 
So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if, that, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So a potter uh, works the clay. Very common scene in ancient Israel. We think of it as kind of a novelty thing, right? You go for a birthday party to a pottery place and you make a little jar. But this would have been happening on a daily basis. This is how you would make your bowls and your various dishes and utensils and pitchers. And so the, the potter is going to work there making a vessel for his use. Maybe it needed to be a tall, slender vessel. Maybe a short, squatty one. Maybe it needed a narrow spout. Maybe it needed a wide spout, right? It was a, a specifically crafted vessel for the potter's use. And if the clay is moldable, great. But if the clay is problematic... And refuses to be formed, the potter starts over again, right? And that's the issue here in this scenario. Something was wrong with the clay. The clay was not allowing itself to be formed. And so the potter has to sort of go back to work again and start all over, right, in that process. And God says, this is how it is with my people. Uh, I'm seeking to shape them into a vessel for my use, and if the people are willing to change and repent and be shaped, great. But if they persist in their rebellion, in their stubbornness, if they're unwilling to change, then I will have to take drastic measures, right? I'm going to have to start over with the clay. God's warning was clear. I think this is just a great way to kind of summarize the, the message here of Jeremiah. God is desiring to shape his people, to shape us, into a useful vessel. But we must be malleable. By the way, God, this imagery is even used in Romans chapter 9. Paul uses this imagery of a potter in the clay as well. Malleable. So there's our, our vocabulary word of the day. Uh, it means to be willing to change, to be pliable to be flexible, to be moldable. We should not be malleable when it comes to truth, right? We should not be changing uh, our doctrine, uh, but we ought to be changing our behaviors. We ought to be constantly addressing our selfishness, uh, various aspects of rebellion in our lives. 
We ought to be allowing ourselves to be conformed to God's ways. So for the people of Jeremiah's day, they were marked by greed and dishonesty, a lack of concern for the poor. They refused to listen to God's word. They violated the Sabbath, again, motivated by their greed. Why work six days when I can work and make money seven days a week, right? So all of these things were ways in which they had rejected God. They had been unwilling to be shaped by the potter. And they're being called to repentance before it is too late, right? Before the clay hardens. One of the things I find so instructive here and challenging in Jeremiah is his focus on the sins of God's people. Uh, There were many sins in the surrounding nations, right? In Babylon, uh, in Egypt, in Philistia. These were evil nations. These are nations that are offering their children as sacrifices to the gods. Uh, They could have easily pointed to the wickedness of the surrounding nations. But uh, Jeremiah turns attention to God's people, right? I I think we have a similar tendency in our wicked culture, an increasingly godless culture, uh, to get fixated on the sins of the culture. And we are right to be grieved by those sins. But sometimes our fixation on those sins blind us to our own sins, And as those who are in a covenant relationship with God, we are the bride of Christ, right? Uh, There is a particular standard that God calls us to, a particular standard that God was calling the people to in Jeremiah's day. So I think a good reminder that we need to be holding up the mirror to ourselves and considering our own sin. And in light of this imagery in Jeremiah 18, what would it mean for you to be the type of clay that God could shape as a vessel for his use? What are the the sins in your life that mar the clay and make it difficult for the potter to work? What changes does God want to, to, to bring about in your life, in my life, in our life as a congregation? So, God is desiring to shape us, but we must allow the potter to work. Now, there's a number of of themes, related themes, that I think just sort of uh, drive home this point and help us think about our responsibility before God. And um, again, Jeremiah is an anthology, so it's, it's not a strict chronology of events, but Uh, Some of these themes just come up again and again and again. God has revealed himself. The expression, the word of the Lord, occurs 52 times in the book. God is not silent in Jeremiah's day, right? He has spoken. He has revealed his standards. He has extended his call. We see God's grace and mercy and patience as he sends prophet after prophet to the people. God has not left us in the dark in terms of his standards, in terms of his expectations for his people. We cannot claim ignorance when it comes to our sin. So this, again, as we think about God as the potter, we as the clay, we we know what God is trying to achieve in our lives, right? God has made it clear. He has revealed himself to us. Jeremiah also helps to kind of define sin. Uh, Sin involves a departure from God's ways and a rejection of God's authority. 
God is serious about sin. One of the key words here is to turn from or to turn away from a prescribed course, to turn our back on something. This word again is used over and over and over again. Sin, Jeremiah reminds us that sin is not simply a series of mistakes. It is not a casual drift away from God. Sin is a willful rejection of God's ways, a rejection of his standards. So again, Jeremiah does, a, does us a real service here. We can, we can very easily claim victim status. We can explain away our sins because of how someone else treated us. Uh, we have all sorts of mechanisms. Uh, we can compare ourselves to someone whose sins are worse than us. Uh, we have all these different ways of sort of putting a spin on our sin. And Jeremiah calls it what it is, a turning our backs on God. And we have to be honest about that. That's what our sin represents. God is to be honored and feared. Jeremiah does a great job of just presenting a really full, robust picture of who God is. And this is part of our problem oftentimes. When we think about sin and our failure to respond to sin, to address sin in our lives, um, God is to be honored and feared. He is great and powerful. One of Jeremiah's favorite descriptions uh, for God is the Lord of hosts. 82 times in 33 chapters, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Uh, He's the powerful God. Uh, He's not to be trifled with. He's serious about sin. Jeremiah speaks of the fierce anger, fury, and wrath of God against sin. And his wrath is associated with fire in multiple passages. He talks a lot about how we're not able to hide our sins from God. One of the more well-known passages here in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Over and over, Jeremiah draws attention to the fact that God knows our hearts. He doesn't just see our outward actions, but he sees our attitudes and our postures and our motivations. And so we ought to, that ought to, that ought to create in us a healthy fear of God. It ought to be a, a motivator to address sin in our lives. Maybe a sin that we think is hidden. It's hidden from other people. And we somehow have convinced ourselves that it's hidden from God. It's not. God is to be honored and feared. This too ought to drive us to change. Proper response to sin is repentance. But what do we do when we recognize that there is sin in our lives, right? When, when, our, when our clay is, is uh, problematic, when in, in the hands of the potter, he's, the potter is not able to shape us because of problems in the clay, what do we do when we recognize our sin? We are to repent. Jeremiah, uh, again, repeatedly urges the people to turn back, to return to God. People are urged to listen and respond to God's word. 
terminology, break up the unplowed ground, like the hard heart, right? The hard soil of our lives. You have to do the hard work of getting out the, the hoe and working the soil. Uh, it talks about circumcising your hearts, this procedure of removing skin. And he says that, that that needs to happen at the level of the heart, right? Where we do the painful cutting away of skin. The proper response to sin is repentance. Uh, Jeremiah does a great job modeling this, I think, too. A number of his prayers are what would be called lament, where he just pours out his grief over sin. And I think that's another great way of responding to sin in our lives. And again, Jeremiah really uh, responds well. If you don't respond to God's word, it is easy to develop a hard heart. Here's another uh, challenge for us to, to turn from our sin, to um, be really responsive to the conviction of God's Spirit in our lives when God's seeking to get our attention. Uh, because if we don't, we can develop a hard heart. There is a really, um, there's a really gripping section in Jeremiah chapter 36, and it has to do with uh, the king um, at, at the time there, King Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah wrote out, had, had, had his scribe write out the prophecies to King Jehoiakim and uh, to, to deliver it to him at the palace. And, and the king receives the scroll from Jeremiah and he sits down in his chair in a cool evening and he reads a section of the scroll and he takes his knife and he cuts it out and he throws it in the fire. And then he reads another section, and he cuts it out, and he throws it in the fire. This wasn't even the king just taking the scroll and saying, I'm not going to read this. He read it, and then proceeded to throw it in the fire. I mean, this this hardened king, right? And he kind of represents the the hardness of the people uh, who had been warned repeatedly by multiple prophets And every time you resist God's conviction in your life, it gets a little easier to resist it the next time. We have many warnings about developing a seared conscience. And this is how Jeremiah describes the people. Uh, Over 40 times we're told that they did not obey the word of the Lord. On uh, multiple occasions, we're told they did not incline their ear to hear. They, they, they plugged their ears, right? Uh, he says uh, they stiffened their necks. They just, I am not going to respond. I clenched my fist. I stiffened my neck. This is what characterized the people. Over time, they became very settled and hardened in their sin. And that, my friends, is a very dangerous place to be. We need to hear that warning. Uh, there's coming a time, there came a time for, for, for Judah, right, when it was too late. Jeremiah is warning them, judgment is coming, God's going to allow Babylon to prevail. And oh, no, no, no. And then it happened, right? And it was too late for them to change. Don't wait till it's too late. Now is the time for 
repentance. There are many who will tell you what you want to hear. This is one of the interesting things about Jeremiah is the number of false prophets that were living in the land. And they would say, oh, peace, peace, uh, nothing's going to happen. Don't listen to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was kind of the lone voice out here speaking God's truth. But the people, of course, gathered themselves around these false prophets. Why? Because they told them what they wanted to hear. (laughs) We're told the same thing happens uh, in our day, right? This is written about in the New Testament. People will gather, people with itching ears, you know, they want to hear certain things. And so they'll gather around teachers and people who will tell them what they want to hear. This is a basic tendency of human nature. There's no shortage of people who will tell you what you want to hear in our culture. Prosperity gospel is alive and well, a gospel that doesn't focus at all on our sin or repentance, just promises all sorts of good things, blessings and prosperity and peace and ease for those who will follow Jesus. We have to be aware of that tendency. It was alive and well in Jeremiah's day. It's alive and well in our day. We can read Scripture. I know it for myself. I can read Scripture and certain things jump off. I like to hear that. And there's other things I don't really want to think about that. Right? Uh, finally here, one of the other real prominent themes is just that salvation is available. A lot of gloom and doom. A lot of darkness in Jeremiah's prophecies. But again, God does not leave them without hope. God repeatedly sent prophets to warn them. That in itself was a mark, a demonstration of God's love and concern and patience. He was extending opportunities for salvation. If you will just change your course, if you will just repent, you will live in the land. Right? So the, 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 the hope of salvation is continued to be offered to them. Matter of fact, right before Babylon conquers Jerusalem, Jerusalem is under siege. I mean, it is a dark day. And God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go and buy some property in the city. And so Jeremiah calls together the proper dignitaries and the notary who's going to got to sign all the documents and they get everybody together and Jeremiah buys property in Jerusalem. Why in the world would Jeremiah buy property in a city that's going to be conquered? Because God was going to bring them back, right? It wasn't the end. Even in the midst of God's discipline and his judgment, God was not abandoning his people. And God went out of his way to make sure that Jeremiah communicated hope and salvation if the people would just turn to him. We have this other great passage that is so well known in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So again, even in the midst of all of Judah's persistent, willful sin and unfaithfulness, God still was not giving up on them. I mean, what a wonderful reminder of God's unfailing love. Now let me just say, God loves you. God loves me. I mean, Peter tells us that uh, Christ is returning. He's returning to bring judgment and to, to make all things right and to address sin in the world. But God has held off Christ's return. It says, be, 
Not, not because he's lost track of time. Oh, my, that's, where, that's right, I was supposed to send Jesus back. No, he, he is patient with us. He's unwilling for any to perish. He, he is holding out, giving everyone opportunity to bow the knee, to turn from their sin, and to turn to him for grace and mercy. That offer of salvation is being extended to you, my friends, just as it was being extended to the people of Jeremiah's day. So we talked about deadlines and how they motivate us, right? That exam tomorrow is hopefully a motivation for you. Uh, Certainly Jeremiah's people should have been motivated by the fact that Babylon was coming. Judgment was coming. The scriptures remind us often that there is another deadline coming. Jesus is going to return in great power and glory. And we are urged to live in light of that soon return. Now is the time to turn to God, to turn from our sins. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never found forgiveness of sins, I plead with you to do it while there is still time, right? To bow the knee, to seek the salvation that he has provided. Even for those of us who are in Christ, we will stand and give an account for what we have done in this life, whether it is good or bad. And Jeremiah is a reminder for us that we should desire to be vessels fit for his use, right? Those that have uh, not only been redeemed, but shaped for his purposes. I'm going to invite our musicians to come on up. We're going to turn attention to the Lord's table here this morning, and as we have done with each of our, uh, our studies, we have finished with some gospel glimpses and just, just reflected on how the text points us to Christ. Jeremiah is no exception. Uh, here we read that Jesus is the attentive shepherd. Uh, matter of fact, one of, uh, one of Jeremiah's critiques of Jerusalem's leaders is that they were uh, bad shepherds. They were not watching out for the flock. And Jesus identifies himself in no uncertain terms, right, as the good shepherd who cares for the sheep. Jesus is the righteous branch. Uh, Israel and Judah were both like trees that had been lopped off, right? Here's this dead stump. And yet Jeremiah promised that a a, a shoot was going to come up from that dead stump. And uh, Jesus is clearly identified as that shoot, that little root from the earth. That little shoot that, that, that has come up from the root of David. Uh, Jesus is the one who would establish the new covenant with his people. There's a really hopeful section there, in, particularly in chapter 31, uh, where Jeremiah talks and promises uh, a new covenant. Uh, and not a covenant written on tablets of stone like the covenant entrusted to Moses, but a tablet, uh, a covenant rather, written on our hearts. God's going to do the internal work to, to, to change us from the inside out. And Jesus makes it very clear that he is the one who has now fulfilled that promise of a new covenant. And Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. We don't have time to get into it, but God pronounced a curse on one of the kings of Judah because of their sin. And it's fascinating to look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke and see how Jesus is rightfully descended from David, 
not under that curse and the rightful ruler. So many ways in which Jeremiah points us to the ultimate uh, salvation that is found in Christ. 